0: Well, welcome back to Amago Gay, a podcast dedicated to the value of Amago Day because equality and dignity of BIPOC and LGBTQ lives matter. I'm your host, Kendra Arsenault, and today I am continuing our conversation with Gretchen Van Ness, civil rights attorney and executive director at LGBTQ Senior Housing, Inc. LGBTQ seniors are a particularly vulnerable population, which makes projects like affordable LGBTQ senior housing, a model for community support. So what are some of the unique ways that LGBTQ persons might experience housing insecurity or homelessness or food insecurity and might need affordable senior housing like this? The
1: more that we are in this world and the more we dig into what the realities are for our LGBTQ elders, but when we're talking about our LGBTQ elders, so we're talking about people in their 60s and 70s, 80s and 90s, These are folks who grew up before there was a single law anywhere in the country that protected us against discrimination, when every single major religion condemned us, when the American Psychological Association said that we were mentally ill, and when criminal laws could throw us in jail for just being ourselves. So we're talking about a generation that grew up when it was very likely that if you came out to your family, you were gonna be kicked out of your family and you wouldn't have them anymore. There was no legal recourse. These things happen to a lot of people in our community, not to everyone, but to a lot of people. And so what this means is you get to your 60s or 70s or 80s, and you are probably less likely to have a family network. You might be less likely to have community or or a church network. You might be less likely to have had a stable work experience, So you so you're more likely to have some economic insecurity. And so those are the folks that we are specifically creating this housing for.
0: Today's sponsors are Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship International. And we're starting this week's conversation where we left off last week. So if you haven't had a chance to listen in, be sure to check it out. So just a little bit about our guest today, Gretchen Van Ness. She is a civil rights attorney and executive director at LGBTQ Senior Housing Inc and recognized as one of Boston's top LGBTQ leaders by Boston Magazine. And Gretchen was also the first woman and openly gay person to run for state representative in Hyde Park, where she currently lives with her spouse, Sharon. (laughs)
1: So like every single florist is like delivering flowers to complete strangers. It was just the most amazing thing. And everywhere you went in Boston that whole week, my office was right across from a beautiful garden in the Old City Hall on School Street. And there were like people getting married in the garden all week long (laughs) So because everybody was like, we don't know how long this is also going to last. So it was a pretty incredible time. That was
0: amazing. It's amazing. I mean, to be a part of that history, one, I'm just so grateful for the work that you've done leading up to that. I think some people think that the fight is over. Twenty fifteen happened and it's like, okay, everyone's equal now. We can we mm. can leave the issue alone. But as you're talking about, there's still discrimination happening and I'm I'm curious, you know, we just had a big win in Massachusetts and in Oregon, two of the first openly lesbian governors. You know, governors, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> No, it's, uh, it's true, yeah. What are your thoughts on that when that happened, when we're like, we made history? Well, it's 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 interesting to, to go back and remember
1: when Harvey Milk was the first gay man elected, open, gay, openly gay man elected to San Francisco City Council. And then Elaine Noble was elected to the State House of State Rep, openly lesbian woman here in Massachusetts in the 70s the same time. Mm-hmm. And to go from how extraordinary that was. And I was just a kid in high school and remember somewhere seeing a little picture of Elaine Noble and looking at her like, Oh my God, Oh my God. (laughs) And just like, there's somebody who's out and confident enough that she's actually run for office and been elected in Massachusetts was just an astonishing thing to this kid in upstate New York. And Mm. we've heard so many stories, the same thing about Harvey Milk when he was elected and such an incredibly funny and passionate and smart guy who's just like, I'm your worst nightmare. Come out, come out wherever you are. It was just fantastic and how much that meant for everyone across the country who didn't know if their lives were going to even be possible, how to get to adulthood and be who we are. So in the span of my lifetimes, to realize we have equal marriage and we've just elected our first out lesbian governor, and she's awesome, is just kind of like, oh, my God, this is great. And the funniest thing about it is that I'm not surprised about our governor's election because I know Maura Healy, and she is so smart and so hardworking and so just, just so good with people. She's such a people person. And so I'm not at all surprised about her political success. But what's interesting is that I want something so much more radical at this point in my age. (laughs) So this is where I am in my life at this point. So I'm really, really happy and wish that we had an even more radical, radical moment. But that's just where I am in my own personal journey at this point and want even more. I hear
0: you. (laughs) Yeah, no. So, yeah. Wow. Uh, And and speaking to that, I I definitely can see myself in the sense of like, there are ways that I have grown that I want my community to grow with me. And to realize everyone's at a different pace. Sometimes it's hard (laughs) to be at the front of the line. It sounds like you've been at the front of a lot of movements for a very long time. And you're, you're waiting for the rest of the world to catch (laughs) up. (laughs) Uh, I don't I, know. If that's that's the case, but
1: I yeah. I, I, but I definitely feel like I'm I'm living the Gloria Steinem prediction that women get more and more radical as they age, and I'm like, <laughs> that's yeah. Number I'm, I'm exhibit number one of that. So Here I
0: am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. As as you kind of are looking back at the progress that has happened, and you're looking forward. I think my last question on, on this topic would be: Do LGBTQ persons have full inclusion in your in your mind? And what ways are we still experiencing marginalization? And what would it take to get us to a more equitable future?
1: Yeah, I think that I mean, we're still facing so many challenges. And, and we'll talk about that a little bit too. And we on creating LGBTQ welcoming senior housing. It's just being out there doing a very gay thing is surfacing all kinds of backlash all over again. So i know that this work of of for our community for as for many communities to be understood to be accepted to be embraced not just tolerated is never ending and because the the roots of the things that cause people to be suspicious of our community are very deep roots that are harmful for all outsiders and so these are old fears and old ways of organizing society that folks are very frightened to let go of they like they don't know if we're not defining ourselves as not that person, we don't know who we are, as opposed to defining ourselves as all members of the human community. And so I, I really see the LGBT community and our work for acceptance, and especially around right now, a non-binary and trans persons as really challenging the rest of society to say, who are you? And who are we as a human family? How are we connected? And how do we interact with each other if we're not going to be in rigid male and female roles, and in rigid sex roles and gender defined roles, all of those things. This is a very challenging and wonderful time in which to live because we're having conversations that never would have been possible 20, 30, 40 years ago. We're creating ways for our non-binary and trans family members to live safely. We are creating ways for LGBTQ elders to live safely. <laughs> so we're doing all of those things. So it's an incredible time, but it's also incredibly challenging because it's revealing how deep these fears are and how all of our defaults to to traditional gender roles, traditional sex roles, and all of that is very patriarchal, but also very racist. And so it gets at everything that we need to change, which is really fantastic So I want to change all those things right now. <laughs> but it's also incredibly challenging and incredibly frightening for folks that don't know what the other possibilities are.
0: As we move forward, you're part of a really amazing project called the Pride Project, the Pride Senior Housing Project. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that today because I think it's so inspiring and I hope that this inspires other people to start one in their own city.
1: Oh, but I, I would love that to happen as well. So, the Pride is the very first affordable senior housing community in Boston as well as Massachusetts and all of New England that will be specifically LGBTQ welcoming. So this is a historic project that's happening in a historic building. It's a former school in the Hyde Park neighborhood of Boston that was closed in 2015, and we were able to buy it from the city of Boston just this past year, and we're in the process now of converting it into 74 units, apartments that will be affordable, mixed income community and specifically LGBTQ. DQ welcoming. So this is a great project that is basically the dream of, of many people in Massachusetts have for over the years talked about how do we create a safe place for us to age, for our community to grow old together. And there have been many different People sort of working on this in different ways, but a group came together about eight years ago specifically to look at if it was possible to develop affordable mixed-income senior housing. Mm-hmm. And our co-founders Eileen Montour and Philippe Saad are both incredibly visionary, just practical, hard-working people. And Philippe Saad is the principal at the architectural firm Demela Schaefer, and he has been just committed to transforming senior housing throughout his career. So the, the, the architectural firm has done a lot of innovative work around affordable housing and senior housing. And Eileen Montour is retired and has spent her life both in social services as a nurse and acupuncturist, as well as social justice organizing, and has helped found a various immigration rights organizations and anti-racist organizations. And now in her seventies is she said is finally working for our community. So it's the first oh. time in her life she's done an LGBTQ specific organizing. And so Philippe and Eileen met some eight or nine years ago. I think they met at a LGBTQ elders of color event and started talking about what can we do to create senior housing in Boston for our community And they very quickly sort of began the process of outreach to the city of Boston, to city councilors, to the mayor's office, as well as looking at communities to figure out where we could put this housing. Where could we create this housing? What makes the most sense? And as Boston, like all major cities, has like an office that they have city-owned property that needs to be developed. And so they went to this office and they looked at all of the different buildings that were out there that could potentially be transformed to housing and ended up in Hyde Park looking at this, the former William Barton Rogers School that had been a middle school and fell in love with this building, just like taking one look at it. And it's a gorgeous building. It was built over the course of three decades and 1900s. And sadly it was just closed and had been sitting vacant for years already by the time they saw it. And they worked with the city of Boston to get it on the list of properties to be developed. And the city put out a request for proposals specifically to create affordable senior housing out of the school. And at the same time, um, Philippe and Eileen formed LGBTQ senior housing and we're getting it incorporated as a nonprofit and beginning to do a sort of nationwide search to figure out who would be a development partner. We have Philippe and the Demela Schaefer to do the architectural part, like to turn this building into housing. But who is going to be the developer to help us do the financing and make this all happen? And after doing a nationwide search and traveling around, they chose Penrose as their development partner because Penrose had already created a couple of affordable senior housing projects elsewhere in the country and had a long track record of creating affordable housing and workforce housing and senior housing, but hadn't been in New England yet. So Mm -hmm. at the same time, I was running for office in Hyde Park, which is where I live. And I met Eileen on the campaign trail. And when I didn't make it, I lost my election. She invited me to join the board of LGBTQ senior housing. And I said, yes, I had many invitations of things to do after I ran for office and was looking for my next adventure. And this was the one that was easiest to say yes to and I joined the board, became its treasurer, and very quickly we, we were suddenly in the position of presenting our response to, to the City of Boston. This is how we would develop this building as affordable senior housing that's also LGBTQ welcoming. And went through a massive community process and presented to the community. The community backed our proposal, and then the City of Boston awarded us the building. So, it's and amazing. by the time we got the building awarded to us and got... The financing together, we were ready at LGBTQ Senior Housing to hire our first executive director. And I was just wrapping up. A stint at the state house working as general counsel for a state senator and was offered the job to be the first employee of this great little organization, this small but mighty LGBTQ senior housing.
0: <laughs> I love it. I think that's so amazing. And I've seen the plans for the building. I mean, it's just beautiful. And you talked about something that I thought was just so key which is that this project is actually a model in so many ways for community because LGBTQ people, they have to have a lot of chosen family at times and that they're kind of experts in building community. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I I think sometimes we don't um, view ourselves as assets. We're always Mm -hmm. looking to make space for ourselves for people to tolerate us, but to see that this particular group is actually an asset in the way that they think and build community.
1: Oh, it's, it's it's so nice of you to ask the question that way. And I, I love to think about it this way, too. So there are a couple of things that have happened in this journey. So I feel like at the beginning of my career, as people who listen to the first part of the podcast know, I did some really tough LGBTQ impact litigation that wasn't always successful. And when we went through like working on the St. Patrick's Day Parade case and other things that I did my clients and all the lawyers received death threats for wanting to be part of the St. Patrick's Day parade in Boston. We, The police took this very, very seriously and offered that my clients, when they marched in the parade, to have bulletproof vests if they wanted to wear them. They put sharpshooters on the roof of the entire parade route to protect us. They did everything they could to make sure we got through safely. We luckily just were spit on and had bottles and things thrown at rocks thrown at us but so having been in that situation where our lives were at risk and how few people stood up for us we were really on our own to now working at, at this other end 40 years later almost well, 30 40 years later I can't believe I'm this old anyway <laughs> I'm working to do something again that's very out very cutting edge this is the, like I said the first LGBTQ senior housing in welcoming senior housing in Boston and when a vandal attacked our building and spray-painted every single sign on our construction fence with threats and insults and threatened to burn our building down, the response was so different. I got a call from our city councilor, from our state reps, from our state senators. We we got the community of Hyde Park was on the phone to me and messaging me all day long when the vandalism was discovered within a matter of three hours, we had 150 people at the building standing out together to say we condemn this hate and we will not let this be. And the next morning, it was a Sunday morning when all this happened. The next morning, the chief of equity and inclusion for the city of Boston called me personally and said, how are you, Gretchen? What do you need? Can I bring you dinner? And Mm. so... So first of all, we have made such phenomenal change that people stand with us and, and are part of our community and support our community. But more has happened because you're right about what we bring to the community. So wh- why are we doing this building in Hyde Park, this sort of like little backwater, this quiet little neighborhood in Boston? This After South Boston, the Hyde Park neighborhood experienced the, the second highest level of Racial violence during the busing crisis in Boston. It's not really well known, but the pictures coming out of Hyde Park are as ugly as anything that you saw out of South Boston during the busing crisis. Um, And so there's this is a community that has some very tough history, but it's also the community where we have the highest rate of non-white homeownership of any neighborhood in Boston. So there's a strong middle class in this little humble community that that really makes it a very special place. And there, as I learned on the campaign trail, trying to uh, be elected to represent this community, there are LGBTQ members of our community who are living in the homes that their grandparents built. So so there's this this amazing collection of people here in Hyde Park that has welcomed this development of the old high school into LGBTQ welcoming senior housing. And they see it as a net gain and they want their family members, they themselves want to grow old here, they want this community be part of our main streets and support our small businesses. So that's one way that we're seen as an asset. That is a really kind of a big surprise. It's like we have so much support in the business community. It's kind of cool. Yeah, <laughs> so,
0: absolutely. And,
1: and then the other part that has happened as this project has become more well known is that we are invited more and more to speak at conferences and on programs about what we're doing, since it is a unique kind of project. So everybody who's in the business of taking care of seniors, like wants to know a little bit about what we're doing. And so I know the founders of this organization just came back from the national conference in Denver for a group called Leading Age, where they had a whole, a whole bunch of programs about our community, serving the LGBTQ community and and creating community. So that's kind of cool. But and I was also just recently on a, a national panel for what they call life plan communities, where you can move into a, a, an apartment but live there during, if you need assisted living and independent living and a nursing home and all those kinds of things. But they, they wanted to talk about aging solo and how do we support the older people who have lost their partners or don't have families? And is that a different thing? Are your programming and supports and services different for that person as he or she ages, compared to somebody who's got a family network or their spouse is still alive and things like that. And they invited me to be part of that. And the expert on the panel, Dr. Sarah Gaber, who has written about aging solo, at one point said that she's married, she and her husband are are very much like thinking about aging, and and she's looked into it quite a bit, that she looked at the LGBTQ community for a model for how to age in place and age when you are on your own and have to choose family and create community as you go. And Mm -hmm. I was so surprised by that. And so, again, amazed to live in a time where our community is seen and our life experience is seen as something Valuable that others can learn from, and it was a absolutely lovely, lovely experience to hear that.
0: I and I loved hearing it when you said it too, because it was just like, "Wow, we are an asset." And so, like I said, so much of the time, you're just fighting for equal inclusion that you're not seeing the things that are special about this community. And so, I I love that perspective, and I loved hearing it when you shared it. Well, one thing that you also shared last time we spoke was that housing like this is so important because of some unique situations. So what are some of like the unique ways that LGBTQ persons might experience housing insecurity or homelessness or food insecurity and might need affordable senior housing like this?
1: The more that we are in this world and the more we dig into what the realities are for our LGBTQ elders, and the more people we talk to, the, the more I learn about this. And so we know it's it's hard for younger people to, to understand this, but when we're talking about our LGBTQ elders, so we're talking about people in their 60s and 70s, 80s and 90s, these are folks who grew up before there was a single law anywhere in the country that protected us against discrimination, when every single major religion condemned us, when the American Psychological Association said that we were mentally ill, and when criminal law's could throw us in jail for just being ourselves. So we're talking about a generation that grew up, generations that grew up when it was very likely that if you came out to your family, you were going to be kicked out of your family and you wouldn't have them anymore. If you were lucky to be in a relationship, find a partner and settle down. If your partner passed away, particularly during the AIDS crisis, if you weren't married, if you weren't on the deed of the house, you had no rights whatsoever. So the the surviving Sisters and brothers, nieces and nephews, cousins, parents, whoever could come in and take your house away from you, and your home, and your your lover's belongings. Your, your partner's life could just disappear. You could be kicked out. If you had kids together, so there are so many folks still today who don't and just don't don't enter a same-sex relationship till they've had kids with a, somebody from the opposite sex or whatever. If you had kids together, and before we had co- adoption, before we had equal marriage, the law said that. You were, if you were the non-biological parent was a legal stranger to those children. So this Mm -hmm. is one of the things that really, really motivated the equal marriage movement was people's experience of like, we chose these to get married. We chose to be together. We chose to do artificial insemination or whatever. And then the non-biological parent ends up being a legal stranger who can't pick up the kids at school can't visit the kids in the hospital. There's a one of the plaintiffs in the marriage case tells the most amazing story of she was pregnant with their child and the kid came early. The pregnant there was like oh my god there was this emergency so they went to the emergency room and um, they took away the woman who who was pregnant to to, to be taken care of while the other partner ran, raced home to get all the paperwork the power of attorney all of the the healthcare proxy all those things. When she came back, the baby had been born. She wasn't allowed to see the baby, and mm. she wasn't the parent of the baby. So, can you imagine having your partner giving birth and not being able even to see see the baby in the hospital? So, the mm. so many different stories like that. But any in any event, these are some of the experiences our seniors have had: losing jobs, losing partners. Like I said, it's not there was no legal recourse. These things happen to a lot of people in our community, not to everyone, but to a lot of people. And so what this means is you get to your 60s or 70s or 80s and you are probably less likely to have a family network. You might be less likely to have community or or church network. You might be less likely to have had a stable work experience, So so you're more likely to have some economic insecurity. And so those are the folks that we are specifically creating this housing for. And we know from all of the different studies that have been done by both our LGBTQ Aging Commission in Massachusetts, by Fenway Institute that has an aging project, that LGBTQ elders are much more likely to have... Have fewer community supports, more likely to have housing insecurity, food insecurity. The Greater Boston Food Bank says that 30% of, of the folks who experience food insecurity in Boston are LGBTQ households, yeah. more um, likely to have experienced health problems. And because we know from some other study that it was just horrifying that so I have blocked out what the study was that says being forced to live in the closet can take 12 years off your life. Oh, wow. so, This is a very real situation, so so why is this housing so important? Because to me personally, I always am aware that I stand on the shoulders of the LGBTQ people who were so courageous before me that started our civil rights movement, that hung in there through and transformed public health and healthcare because of the AIDS crisis, that was in the streets to fight for our rights, that is now fighting for our trans family members with everything that we have. So I stand on their shoulders, and we owe them so much. So this is the generation that we have to now give them the, the ability to live authentically, safely, and surrounded by the community that would also support them doing the things that they want to do. And that's what why this housing is so important. We have something like 35,000 LGBTQ elders just in Massachusetts. And mm-hmm. so we want to want to make sure that we get the pride up and going and then we have the pride 2 and the pride 3 and the pride
0: 4 <laughs> we got 35,000 people the house let's go <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, yeah. yeah. and no. all of our
1: allies. I have to say one more thing. Yeah. So I have to say we were at the building uh, last week that we were having a giveaway with some more of the furniture that we keep on pulling out of this old school, and one of the folks who came by to see us was one of our retired neighbors, who's a straight woman, a retired teacher, and she loves this project. And she said, "You have got to start saying this is LGBTQ welcoming for LGBTQ elders and their allies because I want to live here." Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, as as you said, there are this not not only are we a resource because we have learned so much to share through our lives about how to survive trauma, how to come together and build community and family, but also we're just cool people. and we have allies out there that that want to be around us. So we, that's that's a really cool thing, too.
0: I love that. I love that. You know, something you said that struck me was just the twelve years off of your life for those who have been closeted. And I just when you think about, like you said, the seniors who are now coming into their seniorhood, they live through a lot of unprotection, like the the laws were not protecting them and they were discriminated against and coming to this with a lot of trauma. And I, And I can say like even the bits of trauma that I have experienced in my journey that have been mitigated because there are laws and police, it's impactful. And I just... I would want nothing more than to see them retire and enjoy their old age (laughs) in peace. It's in peace. So Hyde Park and the school actually has a little bit of interesting history. And you touched a little bit about upon that, but maybe you can expand a bit because I thought it was so interesting when you shared.
1: Yeah, this is an incredible building. We're so happy to be doing a historic preservation at the same time that we're doing this adaptive reuse that's going to Create these great apartments, and but we've we've had a bit of a internal struggle because we honor the history of of Hyde Park in every way. The the Grimke sisters who lived here and did some of their most important abolitionist and suffragist work here. The 54th Regiment, which was the Civil War all black regiment of formerly enslaved people. If you saw the movie Glory, it's all about the 54th Regiment. That regiment mustered in Hyde Park, so there's actually a, a small park in. In the Reedville neighborhood of Hyde Park, that has that is exactly where they they did their training, and it's, it's some historic markers are there. As we have conceived of the project, this is a very unusual affordable housing project in a lot of ways because it's very outward facing and community engaged. So there'll be 74 apartments. And all kinds of space for the residents to use because it has all these beautiful old hallways and alcoves and just great gathering spaces. We're adding a sunroom and a courtyard and all of that. But we're also adding public space that is going to be welcoming to everyone in the Hyde Park neighborhood and everyone in greater Boston for programming for the LGBTQ community, for seniors, for everyone in the community and That public space will include a home for the very first time for the 54th Regiment. So we're creating office space and an education center for them as part of creating affordable housing. Um, So we're very, very excited. The 54th Regiment historic reenactors who have all sorts of the papers and artifacts from the original 54th will actually, which they move around and store in like people's attics because they don't have a home right now. They'll have a permanent home with us. So that's really cool. And we're turning the old gymnasium into a community center because Hyde Park doesn't have a senior center and we don't have enough community space for like community groups right now meet in the basement of the police station and that's not ideal. Mm -hmm. So we want to make this community space as open as possible. And we also have deliberately chosen a new name for the building because William Barton Rogers, although he's one of the founders of MIT, so there's a reason that the school was named after him, he was also a slaveholder. And Mm -hmm. so we want to make sure that everyone feels welcome in this building. And so we chose the name The Pride, and it's spelled P-R-Y-D-E because we're in Hyde Park, H-Y-D-E,
0: so, so, so clever.
1: We, we are the pride of Hyde Park now, and and yeah. that's very deliberate to make sure folks understand that this is a, a new time and a new place, and that we honor the history of Hyde Park, and we honor the history of this building, but we know it's a new time, and we, we are a at our hearts an anti-racist as much as we are pro-LGBTQ organization is critical for everything that we do. So we're very happy with the new name.
0: I am so excited for this project. I can't wait to see it open. For those who would like to contribute or or help in any way, is there space for them to do that? And how could they do that? Well, yes. And so as we're building
1: out the Pride, we have secured the package of affordable housing dollars that makes it possible to do the historic preservation to create the apartment. So the bricks and mortar, we still have to get some money in for that, but that's basically taken care of. What will make this building LGBTQ welcoming and makes it special is that we are also raising money for programming and services. Mm -hmm. So because we're LGBTQ senior housing itself is a new organization, we don't have an office right now. So we're also creating an office for ourselves in the building. Um, But to actually make the community center everything that we want it to be and the building everything we want it to be. We're trying to raise all the money that we can right now for an endowment and for programming and services, things like a transit van for for the residents, we hope a lunch program, an author series, drag brunch, drag bingo, apparently is a thing. I don't know.
0: <laughs> so I'm a lot definitely of- <laughs> going to drag bingo. So. <laughs> exactly. Wait till you see it on the calendar.
1: <laughs> so, no, we have a, have a lot of ideas and, and we that we want to make as include as many people from the community as possible as well. So that's one piece. Folks can donate at our website. Now it's, it's www.lgbtqseniorhousing.org, or you can just research Google's LGBTQ Senior Housing Boston, you'll find us. And the other ways that, that people can help is to help spread the word. So we know that we have a big job ahead of us in the coming year. We hope to open our doors in the fall of 2023. We don't know how the construction schedule is going to hold over the winter months and all of the rest, but late 2023 is when we'll be welcoming our first residents. So we want to make sure to get the word out to everybody possible. So we want people to be talking about this as much as they can. You may not know who in your circle has a has an aunt or an uncle or a parent or grandparent who needs our housing so we want folks to be talking about it as much as possible sharing what we post on social media so we have a facebook page we never got around to making a Twitter account, which is probably fine right now. <laughs> since the state off, of Twitter, you know? <laughs> you're you're okay. <laughs> right, right. And we have a newsletter. So we have an occasional newsletter, so you can sign up for the newsletter on our website. And as we work toward opening our doors next year and know more about who our residents will be, we're we do so we want to continue to do outreach so that everybody who in Massachusetts and around Massachusetts who needs our housing gets an application in on time. So help us get the word out as best you can in your networks and then as as we get closer to opening next year we're going to have so many opportunities for mentoring for partnerships for for volunteering to work with our community to staffing events and programming and things like that too so we we have a million ideas and we would be happy to accept people's help if they want to volunteer and be part of what we eventually will be doing next year
0: i honestly i would love to see this multiplied. Like I would love to have this like manufactured housing. Like you, you did it here in Boston and we're going to do it in every city <laughs> in the United
1: States. Yeah, no, really every city needs one and every community needs those. I mean, I think that the thing that continues to astonish me is that like, we're just this little tiny like nonprofit here in Massachusetts, but we get calls from people all over the country that are I'm 65 years old, I'm living outside Chicago, Illinois, and don't have a community. Is there any way I can come and be part of the pride? How do I get to you guys? Or I grew up in Boston, that's where my people are, my community is, but I've been priced out. How do I come back and be able to live out my my old age in the city that I've always lived in before? So we we hear from people all over the the country, I got a call from a, a gay group in, in Canada that's so like, we want to do this in Canada. So how yeah. did you do it? So this definitely is a model that we have to take and make happen in more places. And this is one of the reasons we're so excited to partner with Penrose, our developer, because they feel the same way. They're just as committed to this as we are. And so we constantly are in touch with them about opportunities to do more in Boston, not just sort of adaptive reuse but also like how can we create a community from scratch what does it look like if you're building this from the ground up so we're looking for both of those options very soon because we'll be opening our doors in the next year here so so we know that we'll be doing more in boston and eileen and i keep talking one of our co-founders keep talking about how do we sort of make record what this model is how did we get here what how did it happen that we got here what is what are the lessons that we can take and give to other people to try in their communities. This is a great, great project, and it has community support. And there's such a huge need that we want to figure out a way to share this with more people as well. And so we're we're working on that. I'm not sure what that will look like and how we're going to make time to figure that out on top of everything else we're doing. But we feel very strongly that we, we know that we're older and we have to, like, pass on this knowledge to the folks who are going to replace us in this work. And so we're definitely working on that, too.
0: Thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Amango Gay, as we continue to build bigger boxes for a bigger God and a more inclusive community. For those lofty visionaries listening in interested in how you can provide support like this for LGBTQ seniors in your community, you can find out more at lgbtqseniorhousing.org. And if you'd like to connect with our guest for today, civil rights attorney Gretchen Van Ness, check out their website at www.lgbtqseniorhousing.org. Org. I've been your host for today, Kendra R. Snow, and you can reach me at Kendra with an X. Be sure to connect with our sponsors for today, SDA Kinship, which is creating spaces for LGBTQ Adventists, ex-Adventists, and other faith affiliates to find community. You can learn more at sdakinship.org. Also, big shout out to our sponsor for this week, Spectrum Magazine, because they are making safe spaces for challenging theological dialogue, and they need your support to keep conversations like this going. So you can check them out at SpectrumMagazine.org. This episode was created and engineered by yours truly and sponsored by Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship International.